Thanks so much, uh, John, for the kind introduction. And yeah, it's a kind of unusual format. We wanted to sit a little bit lower, change the table to communicate that this is more of an open-ended uh, uh, conversation. Um, and uh, so, you know, we basically we're not going to start off with uh, much in the way of introductory remarks. I'm just going to start to kind of pose questions to uh, to the panel. Uh, we'll do I'll do a couple, and then I kind of hope to. Um, start seeing hands, and we'll start integrating comments and questions from um, from the rest of the folks here. So uh, that's anyway the the idea. We'll see how how well that all goes off. So one of the uh, kind of questions that I wanted to start us off with was, you know, of course, and and the idea with this discussion here is to integrate some of the practical conversation that we've been having from the rest of the day with some of the more kind of theoretical um, literature and, and ideas around federalism that have grown up in the past or so years. Um, so one, you know, of course there's lots of theories about why we would want to allocate uh, authority to one jurisdiction or another. There are classic economic theories around externalities and, you know, uh, people sorting into jurisdictions where their preferences are aligned with those of the local policymakers. But, you know, one thing that I find striking in debates about federalism, and I think is particularly salient these days, is that it's often, at least on the surface, really, to my mind, about forum shopping. It's just go to the forum where you think you can win, right? So when the Trump administration is power, then, you know, industry wants there to be lots of power aggregated up into the federal institutions. Environmentalists want lots of authority at the state or even local level if they can have it, and then switch, and you know, you have a Democrat in power, and everybody just says, wait a second, we've been arguing, you know, for, despite the fact they've been arguing for, for federal power, we'll just switch it over and talk about how states <laughs> are great, right? And, and they're pretty shameless about that. So, uh, so I guess but the first question is, you know, do you think that that's right, and it's really about form shopping, or do you think that there are these kind of consistent, you know, um, through lines where either different interest groups or kind of different real genuine structural characteristics of our system tend to put questions um, in certain um, certain jurisdictions rather than others. Hannah, you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I'm pretty skeptical about most values attributed to federalism, and I agree with you that um, both, you know, all types of interests from all parties are, are guilty of forum shopping and using federalism to their advantage. I was... I was on a panel once where, to his credit, someone from the kind of, it was more of a local, well, the Florida chapter of the American Petroleum Institute is not so big because we don't have as much, we don't have much drilling in Florida these days. But he admitted that the oil and gas industry just supports federalism or not to the extent it's, and I was impressed that he admitted right. that. Right. So he's not um, going to move up in the organization. <laughs> no, he's not. But, but environmentalists are, are all, you know, struggle with the same problem. When, when it looks like local and state governments are supporting renewable energy and that's where the action is, uh, we, we might support more of a sub-federal structure, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the Trump administration right now, which claims to be very pro-local and states' rights, we're, we're seeing that there's not, and this has happened with many administrations, especially uh, with the California waiver for air quality, for example. I think that's a big, big, big example where California is supposed to be able to more aggressively regulate uh, pollutants under the Clean Air Act because of its historic problems, and uh, Trump early on indicated it was potentially not allowing that waiver authority to continue. So are there any consistent principles? And to me, I think sometimes the argument that there's a comparative advantage at, at different levels of governance, just in terms of 
expertise, or I, I'm, I'm somewhat persuaded this, by this argument that comes up often that there, local governments, uh, do we have our council member here still? I had to leave. That local governments are sort of closer to uh, those they represent and more able to respond to uniquely localized issues. On the other hand, if we had a, a, a massive federal infrastructure and, and enough federal staffing, we could just send, uh, right? So to the, I, I think if you look at resource reality, maybe it is true that there are comparative advantages simply because the way our federalist system has evolved happens to have created very strong local governance. We don't have a lot of federal officials acting at the local level except in circumstances like agriculture. I'm writing a paper about USDA extension service mm -hmm. type issues. There we do have the federal government responding at, even at the farm level. Mm -hmm. So we, even with comparative advantage of, of governance levels, I'm not fully persuaded, but I think there, there might be a little more purchase. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I, felt, I felt like you were asking sort of two questions. Um, so, and, and, and it seems like Hannah was also addressing both of them, so I'm gonna kind of split them into two mm -hmm. different section <laughs> answers with maybe different um, ideas or some action points for each one. Um, so the first is this potential hypocrisy in the Trump administration and maybe on the part of industry or just in general in society or just anyone. So here we have uh, a prime example, uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, who was a huge fan of federalism under the Obama administration and came in on all these litigation and he, you know, that was the, the line. Um, and now commentators and scholars are starting to notice and advocates are starting to notice that the federalism is sort of one-sided. It's okay if the state wants to go lower on environmental quality, but not okay if the state wants to go higher. And, you know, Hannah mentioned the point of the uh, California's authority under the Clean Air Act, um, longstanding since the start, um, to set more stringent standards for motor vehicles and him sort of threatening to pull back on this waiver, revoke it, um, then push, then sort of moving away from that. And what, what, is this, what does this tell us about what he thinks about federalism? Does he, so is he consistent himself? So there's individuals, um, and I think the answer is clearly not. And then the idea is, well, what is his constituency then? Who is he responding to? Um, and it seems like it might be industry or some segment of industry. So I think, I think something that uh, environmental groups could be thinking about um, is whether there are industries that can come together with environmental groups to support some measure of environmental protection in this era of the Trump EPA and see if progress can be made in that way. So this is very difficult, but the Chesapeake Bay panel, for example, for those of you who um, were there, you know, that's in a situation where the Clean Air Act already stringent, stringently regulates certain sources, the point sources. So they have an incentive to try to get the non-point sources to do more of a part. So how much can we leverage their support? And, you know, John mentioned how in litigation uh, before the district court and the Third Circuit, there were uh, some of the municipal waste facilities coming in. Um, throwing their support with the environmental behind the uh, TDML. So the question is, how much can we use that 
Um, is this something that environmental groups are tapping into? Um, is this something that the public can get involved in? There are certain sectors where uh, companies have talked about their support for environmental regulation as a way to get public uh, support for their products. Can this be used in other ways and things that we haven't thought about? Should we, talking, should we be talking about farms and whether they're supporting uh, trying to stop their non-point pollution in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and then aside from that, you know, I'm, I'm here from George Mason, so I guess I, I have to say the word free market environmentalism <laughs> at some point. I mean, everyone's expecting it. But I mean, it might be a time where, you know, we do some environmental groups, do some forum shopping too, and start thinking, but in a different way, thinking about ways that we can use different levers that, um, we haven't needed to push before when we had a federal government that was in support of us. And so, you know, in the Chesapeake Bay, we didn't hear a lot about trading, water quality trading, um, but can that be something that we can leverage going forward to create some improvements? So, so some stuff there. But then going back to, you know, Mike also mentioned stuff about the theory of federalism. So it's, it's, it's very tricky. I mean, um, there certainly are benefits to being able to choose where you live based on different attributes. And some of these attributes are going to be quality of the water, the air, etc. So um, some people might care less, some people might care more, and then there's difficult questions about whether this all comes down to wealth. And so, I mean, it's, it's a very tricky area, but, um, but certainly uh, we're we need to use that sort of to our advantage given the the reality of the, what the federal government is doing. You, you know what I also thought about when you mentioned your question too? Um, going the other way, it's interesting how much, um, how much more power the federal government is also taking in areas that you, uh, you know, otherwise, just this, the FERC proposal from the DOE. Subsidizing coal. And subsidizing coal. I mean, what, what a fascinating development. I mean, I can't believe we're talking about this under a Republican administration that they're, they want to have more control over these wholesale electric yeah, markets and put in markets. these, I mean. Subsidizing coal and, and, then, and a tariff on um, solar panels too. Yeah. It's another not traditional Republican administration move to slap tariffs on. Uh, right. And in terms of just what this means, like, does this mean, is there precedent then for in the future for a different administration to include environmental costs? That could be a good thing. So, I mean, it just raises, yeah, this yeah, hypocrisy yeah. just goes, it just raises so many questions. And, and I think um, we need to be responsive to what's going on and try to utilize it to our best. Um, great. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that, that is interesting that, that shows, um, you know, that highlights this kind of forum shopping element, you know. You don't know ex ante when you're arguing for, say, against the the the, the current idea that's been floated to use uh, FERC's authority over electricity markets to essentially build in a a, a mechanism to shovel cash to coal-fired power plants. Um, they will start burning uh, money instead of coal at some point. Um, and we just will have so much of it. <laughs> exactly. That would, be, that would be good, probably. Yeah, um, we prefer that. Yeah. Just, yeah. So, um, <laughs> it would be cheaper. 
Um, but in any case, uh, you never know, because if you argue kind of on federalism grounds that that's a bad idea, or on FERC's authority grounds, then that maybe disables a future administration who might want to put in a, a carbon price that way, exactly. right? And I find it similar in some ways to arguments about judicial deference, right? Um, folks that, you know, have a president in power, want there to be lots of deference to presidents, and then, and then they, they, they switch opinions when, when presidents turn over. Um, so another kind, this is another uh, question that's in this general vicinity. So one um, argument or one view that some folks might have is that claims about wanting to um, expand local autonomy, you know, the kind of the, 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 the claims that are being made around, you know, kind of a state's rights approach to federalism, um, are really about disabling environmental protection. Now, that's the actual goal, is to make it difficult or impossible to engage in stringent um, regulation. Now, that, so, that's, so that's the, the claim. Um, and in some instances, it might, including that we've seen today, there's some, there, there, there's some persuasiveness to, to this, right? So it's very hard to imagine the Chesapeake Bay, you know, some a management, efficient management program for the Chesapeake Bay, which involves six states, plus the District of Columbia. There's a lot of ocean element to it as well. Being, you know, in any way effective without some federal manager there. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. There might be certain types of environmental issues uh, where they can be effectively managed, you know, without a lot of um, uh, oversight from the federal government, right? So you might think of very local water pollution type issues or very local air pollution issues. So there's not a lot of inter-jurisdictional externalities. And so an example of this might actually be, um, uh, it relates to kind of the waters of the United States rule. This is kind of where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> so just a preview. So the idea with the waters of the United States rule is this is a rule that was adopted by the Obama administration to help define the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, okay? And so one of the, um, basically, to, 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 to kind of package, you know, to describe it very quickly, the question they're trying to answer is how small is too small of a water body for the federal government to assert jurisdiction over it? That's basically the question. And the Obama administration, consistent with the prior administrations from both parties, issued a rule that was fairly expansive. Right? Certainly the Farm Bureau would characterize it that way. And I think the environmental groups thought that the federal government wasn't asserting enough authority, actually. So it was a little bit in the middle, but more uh, in the direction of the environmental community than what we're seeing now or are likely to see from the Trump administration. So one question is just to you know, revisit the, the, this issue of you know, maybe it is a good idea to be regulating very small water bodies um, that are not so interconnected with other water bodies at a local level. Um, you know, what are, the down, what are the downsides to that, either from an environmental perspective or more broadly from a societal perspective? Um, and, you know, maybe the, the Trump folks have, maybe this is, this is the right, you know, if, if, if they're going to be doing this, climate change is the exact wrong context, right? Uh, big interstate TMDLs are exactly the wrong context, but maybe the waters of the U.S. is a, is a better case uh, for, uh, uh, for these kind of moves. You can go first this time. Uh, so Eleanor Ostrom did a lot of work thinking about um, when local groups should have control over resources and what the system of government should be in place to um, make these work. And so, I mean, I think the simple answer is in, in some context, then it might be best left to the local government. They have more knowledge about this. I mean, we, we have to be honest about the failure, some of the failures of the federal government. And if you get involved and if preemption comes into play, I mean, there could, be, there could certainly be messes. Um, but 
but this is not, I, you can't do this across the board um, because research shows that there are just certain conditions that need to be in place for these kinds of local groups to work. So when I don't think it would work is if you have a small water body and a bunch of separate polluters that have no relationship to each other. I mean, these are not the kinds of resources that are going to be managed well just by these groups on this water body. Um, so there's the local government, and then how much can they police these groups? But, you know, so I think it has to be looked at at a case-by-case -case basis. So that doesn't help for your broader question of how to set the definitions. Um, but there's hope that if the Trump administration pulls back on the definition, then maybe that could be an approach that people could use and try to see which are the water bodies that are now outside of the federal government's reach that could be the most vulnerable and might need more support or the ones that are most likely to create something on their own and how we can support that. So this is, it, it sounds like a lot of this is in the externalities area, which you're so much more of an expert on than I am, but, <laughs> but uh, it's, I, I see how it's tempting uh, for the Trump administration and others who have long been concerned about perceived overreach of federal law when it comes to, to resources for which there don't appear to be true uh, trans-border externalities. And, and the migratory birds argument apparently just has never been powerful enough. Um, I mean, I, I think many would view the migratory birds as being, being enough of a hook, but legally it might not be. Um, so if, if we were to truly view these resources as, not, as there, it, any misuse not causing enough of an externality across state boundaries to justify federal intervention, um, perhaps there would be some hope of, of I, I don't know about a race to the top, but, but, <laughs> but maybe some positive competition among local governments or states uh, in, a, in a positive, a, a beneficial direction rather than a negative direction. But, but I'm not sure how that, how that race to the top would work. So it's working to some extent, I think, with renewable energy because there's so clearly profit in it now that states like Texas are, are trying to get, they're now trying to get the solar industry to, to take off because the wind industry has proved so economically beneficial. With respect to small waters, <laughs> Um, what, what would incentivize protection uh, and, and in, in an effort to sort of attract certain types of people to your state? Uh, per, uh, that's hard for me to see because I'm not sure that arguing that we have nice, clean, you know, small ponds is going to attract the, the tech people or the, <laughs> I mean, you can argue that you, you're, you're, you have great internet or, you know, but, but. <laughs> Um, and the, and, and far, the very agricultural states, farmers, from what I can under, understand, are, are the ones who consistently push back against federal regulation because they're the most impacted by any enhanced regulation. So I guess I'm concerned. I, I, I'm not seeing a, a potential race to the top there. Aside from, I mean, when we talk about the, the fishing, the, you know, in the, these coastal areas, uh, when you look at that type of water, and, and you can show that there is this very important, strong local industry, be it fishing or surfing, that that seems to be working very well. But with these small ponds, is is that can you get enough people to rally around them? It's very different, I think, from from uh, the coast of the ocean. Right. 
and where this kind of clear economic tie-in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I mean, that, you know, one other argument would it be that just the idea of a purely local environment like that is an abstraction that has no purchase in the real world, where we actually exist in interconnected ecosystems, and you can't abstract out that small town in Pennsylvania, right, from the fact that you know many hundreds of miles away they're impacting the Chesapeake Bay. Now, it may be very difficult to you know, you're using models and so on to try to discern yeah. that impact, um, but it is there, it's measurable, and, and it's worth, um, it needs to be taken into consideration because if it's not, you know, they're not going to internalize that. So another um, question that we've kind of been focusing on over the course of the day is, and it's difficult to avoid, is this question of kind of politics, obviously. <laughs> it intersects a little bit with environmental law these days. And so, um, and so one of the things that I'm kind of curious about and others have written about as well is how the allocation of authority uh, between the feds and the states and the, and the local, can it, can it, it recursively impacts politics, right? Is that when the forum for decision-making is the federal government, well, that's where organizing is going to be directed. That's where the money's going to go in terms of that's going to fund federally-oriented environmental organizations. Um, you know, that's what the media is going to cover that kind of thing, and that's where people are going to think that decision-making is, because, and in fact, it is there. And if you shift decision-making to the states, then it's going to have... Um, you know, a similar effect where you're going to, you know, that's going to incentivize building political power at the state level and then, and then locally. So I guess one question is, you know, we've had a fairly federally oriented um, allocation of authority in U.S. environmental law for several decades now. And you could at least plausibly, or what do you think of the proposition, that that has kind of skewed the political discourse to the federal level where states now, there's just not much in the way of state um, environmental organizing or local environmental organizing. And that that's kind of, well, this is the proposition, that that has been to the detriment of the environmental community and the ability of the environmental community to continue to build affiliation and an affinity that exists in a kind of robust way at the local level. We've heard about some local organizing today um, that's very robust around local watershed management and so on. But maybe it's easier um, to, um, you know, to kind of motivate folks around local resources rather than around some big federal rulemaking that no one really understands and is very far removed from the, the reality of people's um, everyday lived experience. So, so that's a, a question for you guys is do you think the allocation of authority, you know, largely at the federal level has had um, negative impacts on, on kind of the environmental community and environmental organizations, um, environmental politics, more broadly, or do you think it's been a good thing? There's an argument on the other side, right, that actually by concentrating decision-making at the federal level, you reduce some of the public choice pathologies, you make it easier for environmental groups to organize by concentrating decision at a single point rather than spreading it out over the whole country where industry will just beat them um, in lots of individual forms. So I'm just curious about um, your thoughts on this intersection of you know, over the dynamic intersection over time of, of environmental politics and the operation of authority. I just, I just don't know if you can separate that from the question of who has the power, because it, the strategy, the optimal strategy, totally depends on that. So, if you think that it's still in the federal government, and you think, if you think we're going into an era of cost-benefit analysis, and we think that that's the conversation, then I think it's optimal for environmental groups to stay big so that they have the money and the potential to look into these studies and sort of fight industry on the same footing on this forum. 
But if you if the power shifts, then 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 yes, the strategy should change. And if the strategy is not changing, then that's a problem with these groups. But but you know, in these some of these areas where um, there hasn't been a lot of federal involvement, I, I think I'd push back. I think there is some local groups that care about these issues. They would just not characterize themselves necessarily as environmental groups. But they so might they might be doing so I was thinking about this when, you know, I visited some communities that uh, in Kentucky that um, are near where they do mountaintop removal. And a lot of these communities are starting to be against these practices, but they're not environmental groups. As they don't have the word environmental in their name. They're, they're, some, they're a community of, you know, uh, some sector here. One was uh, we met with was, um, was just a uh, living facility for poor individuals that happened to be at the foot of the mountain, but they were starting to think about how to organize. So, um, and in that sense, you know, when the conversation switches there, then maybe the bigger groups could start looking into where these groups are and trying to give them some support, because, um, you know, so th that's just, <laughs> just a few ideas. <laughs> I've, I've been intrigued by how these national environmental groups almost have a cooperative federalism structure mm -hmm. parallel <laughs> to the government, yeah. and it seems somewhat effective. So when you look at Environmental Defense Fund, Natural Resources Defense Council, they have state and I think in some cases even local offices, which are implementing the national vision of these groups at a subnational level in, in different ways, mm -hmm. recognizing that there are different uh, local and state political circumstances. I, I'm not sure if there have been many analyses of how effective that is as compared to, uh, you know, cooperative federalism in the environmental context. But to me, that, that has, it, it seems that even with this his recent attention at the national level, groups like that have not lost, uh, they, they have not forgotten about the importance of, of that, the subnational federalism. And another, uh, uh, not, but I, I agree with you, though, that uh, the oil and gas issue, the, the, bo the fracking boom has highlighted the challenge of operating at the very localized level. I mean, because um, oil and gas in particular has not been largely federally regulated, particularly onshore oil and gas on development on private lands. And you've had to see groups mobilize very quickly, but it's, it's tended to be... Uh, Community group, pre-existing community groups that, that shifted to, you know, previously they were worried about the, some sort of nuclear waste, low-level nuclear waste site. Now they're shifting over to concerns about hydraulic fracturing. And in a way, they might have the advantage um, to these national industry groups that you'd expect would capture the process because it's expensive for a big oil and gas company to send one of their attorneys or representatives at every local meeting in a small town in Colorado, although they're doing it. They do it, yeah. They are doing it, and it's very interesting. <laughs> they show up and they say, by the way, you're, you're, about, you're going to be preempted by your state, so don't even bother to do this. Um, but right, but that sounds like a terrible argument for them to make. I mean, that might be true, but it's, no, people don't like to hear that. No, they don't, but that's, I've listened to some of these. Yeah. It's, it's intriguing. In, some, in many cases, they're arguing you're already preempted, so this resolution that you're passing is pointless. It does make they make the the uh, people at the meetings even angrier. It seems, but they they're not afraid to say. And it's in, so they are incurring the cost of going to all these meetings. But I, I'm wondering if, especially given the number of um, moratoria and bans 
that have emerged, maybe these groups are, have some advantage because they've, they've been at the local level all along. They've just worked in different issues, as you pointed out. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about the federalist structure of some of the environmental organizations because they differ from each other, right? Yeah. So the Sierra Club yeah. has a much more decentralized organizational structure yeah. where they have these chapters that have a fair amount of autonomy and so on, yeah. where if you compare it to like an NRDC or EDF, which you, they're fairly top-down, they have regional offices, but they don't kind of make decisions on their own other than, you know, within their sphere. Right. Um, but, but, but that is, but it's an interesting, you know, juxtaposition of, of the two. Can, can I follow up on the, on the fracking point? Um, I've just always been curious about this. I've, just, I've looked at some of these uh, local opposition. I was looking at the New York opposition, and obviously now there's a ban in New York, but before that, when there was a moratorium, there was some a action there. And it looks like these localities that a lot of people sort of thought, oh, this is political, this is, you know, nothing's really happening, yeah. but it, it was correlated, you know, when I was looking at this with their perceived costs and yeah. the yeah. lowered benefits that different areas would get from the shale development. So um, I remember there's this old study from the International Energy Administration about how industry should be supporting stringent regulation to preempt this kind of opposition from happening that you know seems to be based on some of these costs of benefits. So I, I was always wondering why they, they don't show up to these local meetings and, are, and instead of saying the state's going to preempt you, why aren't they saying we yes. support yeah. really safe measures. Mm -hmm. We will have, yeah. we will fix your roads also and give you money. Yeah. Uh, things that, you know, we've heard from, the, that, you know, from John, how the, the groups on the floor, they care about these kinds of yeah. things. Some companies have taken more of that sort of uh, social, uh, social license to operate approach. And I, I think some gave up, though, because, uh, because hydraulic fracturing has been such a volatile issue. Their view was no matter what we do, there's going to be opposition, and, and they're going to hijack the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's, it's too bad, because I think there were some companies, that, at least at first, that tried to, in good faith, maybe, <laughs> negotiate with these communities. But another in, inter, interesting comparison is how these companies operate internationally with local communities as opposed to here. In many cases... They're much more diligent about entering into community development agreements internationally than here, perhaps because they're worried about violence. Maybe they have <laughs> concerns about That's interesting. Uh, yeah. That is interesting. Right. Uh, so, I mean, at some level, the, the way to think, one way to think about that violence is maybe it's not fully state-sanctioned, but it's community-sanctioned, yeah, right? When right. The, you know, it's, not, it's outside the state monopoly on violence, but ultimately that's what the state has backing it in any case. And, you know, it's another way of thinking about power, right? Yeah. So in the U.S., if you can go to the state legislature, you know, and, you know, it's, you're in some state with a dysfunctional legislature, read, well, I don't know, what, 48 out of the 50 states, um, then it should be, you know, relatively easy for you to get one of these bills passed, and you can, you know, you don't have to worry about the local community, so you don't have to operate in the same way, you know, with these kind of yeah. local agreements. Um, but you might even wonder whether the local agreements are actually efficient. I mean, maybe, maybe yeah. there's an argument that it's actually better for the states. Um, all right, so I'm going to put one more kind of general theme on the table, and then I want to open it up for sort of some kind of broader interventions. So this has to do with kind of regionalism versus, you know, we talk a lot about federalism. or In the legal discourse, there's a lot of discussion about federalism, that particular structure, which is about the national government and how the national government relates to state governments. So we're really looking at these kind of two entities and how they relate together. But, of course... 
You know, in the U.S., we have local municipal level governments that make lots of decisions and where lots of politics happens. And there's also kind of regional decision making, right? So EPA regions, of course, we have the circuit courts that we're all familiar with. So we have different law. Now, these regions all don't overlap with each other. So there's, you know, but they, you know, roughly do in some level. Um, but that's another layer of, a, of authority that's often not discussed. So, Hannah, I'm particularly interested in the piece that you're working on, the U.S., DA, you know, operating, it's a, you know, national uh, yeah. agency, but of course, you know, operating at, the, at a hyper, quite local level. Yeah. Um, and you have the Forest Service works this way, yeah. you can have Forest yeah. Service managers. The that includes that example. It talks about <laughs> yeah. those yeah. guys as well, right, because they have, can have close relationships with states. Yeah. Um, and so I'd just be curious about your thoughts about where we're kind of missing out on the picture when we focus only on the, on the, on the national level and the states and how they interact. Yeah, I, I think when you look closely at many governance regimes, you'll find real, real involvement by local, state, regional, and federal entities. Uh, maybe not with something, well, with the Clean Air Act. Yeah, local, some local governments mm -hmm. do most of the implementation of the Clean Air Act. Mm -hmm. And then they, and California has reached the SQUAMD, the regional agencies within California that implement the Clean Air Act, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so with the USDA, uh, and. This gets a little bit to the Chesapeake Bay type issues. The USDA uh, really took off after the Dust Bowl. It was mostly concerned about erosion at that point, but, mm. but, it's, but it was concerned about just the soil running into waters and mm. not just impairing the waters from the Chesapeake Bay type perspective, but also just the loss of soil and productivity. Right. And USDA sent its own staff uh, to create these, what were called experiment stations. It was, it was a direct policy experiment. It was experimenting in effective methods to prevent erosion and improve mm. watersheds, but uh, also in which policies would work best. <coughs> Eventually, it was, these experiment stations became state-run. The, the USDA realized it would, it would, if they wanted a lot of these experimentation stations, experiment stations to emerge, they'd have to partner with the states. <laughs> And at the same time, they were developing the Cooperative Extension Program, which was in, uh, in concert with these land-grant universities. Uh, and, and so the USDA was working with states and local governments to have these experiment stations and then Cooperative Extension Services that would basically teach farmers how to improve their practices. And you will today even see some Cooperative Extension agencies or USDA field offices within a tiny post office mm. in a town of 200 people. Mm. So, I, yeah, I just think it's, we often forget, that we look at some federal agency, we think this is federal, when in reality there's so much going on at, at the lower level. Right. I mean, they get their paychecks from yeah. the federal government, right? Yeah. But they're, they're, yeah. they live in the local community. That's and right. They, and they're working direct, uh, farm to farm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Carolyn, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, yeah, no. So I haven't spent time thinking about the, these uh, what exactly happens at the regional level versus the state versus the federal government? Um, but how, you know, but I wonder how much of that is just uh, is just like a man. I mean, how else can the federal Speed. government really? Mm -hmm. You know right. what I mean? So well, they could always partner. I mean, it's an interesting yeah. trade-off. And they did partner. Right? Yeah, yeah. But there's a trade-off <laughs> in terms of you do it yourself or right. rely on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, local partners, and it's interesting that it evolved. And maybe right. this is all of this is just path dependent, and like it yeah. just happened this way over here, and it just happened another way right. in some other context. And it could be just a matter of control. I mean, it, partnering, you'd have a lot less. Mm -hmm. It would just be it'd be a different kind of principal agent problem than regional directors right. of the EPA for different regions. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't know. I mean, it, but but I I find it hard to believe it's an active choice that was made. Right. So I, I right. <laughs> maybe it was just yeah. Okay. So yeah, John. Yeah, the uh, here, but um, you know, there's been a, a, quite a period of experimentation with different regional, that is, multi-state regimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Over time, there have been some river compacts yeah. that mm -hmm. some of which have worked pretty well, at least on all the issues. Others of which haven't worked that well. The Delaware River Basin Compact. And Others. Um, and then the Chesapeake Bay program itself, the Chesapeake Bay effort began as an agreement among mm -hmm. the governors of the states of the basin. EPA was a party to that agreement, but so were the governors of each of the states. And it was designed to be a regional, multi state effort right. with some technical support from. EPA, but not the top-down, conventional mm -hmm. top-down federal control. And that was renewed and renewed and really is the basis for what's going on now, but it proved inadequate because of collective action problems you might imagine in a multi-state regime like that. And what, what EPA did with the TMDLs is basically impose some central discipline on the agreement that the states had already reached about goals, right. but were unable to implement because of the defection problem or the free rider problem. Right. So that's an interesting example of what regional cooperation can get you, and also what it can't get mm -hmm. you. Right, right. right. what its limitations are. Right, yeah. right. And, 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 I, and I think that raises some interesting points about some of the fears that we have under the Trump administration, which is that some of these um, what we consider to be state-level in interstate agreements that are just what all states want are going to be hard to achieve when you don't have the EPA in the background as the backstop, as the enforcer, as the someone who's just even looking at these midterm assessments that happened in 2016. I mean, that that's part of the process that the states wanted in place to push them forward to meet these goals. and. Um, and we heard about this already in the enforcement context, that a lot of states um, want the EPA there in the background, even if they're doing most of the enforcement as, well, you know, you'd rather deal with us than the EPA. But once that goes away, what does that do for even them to enforce their own programs? So, I mean, it's certainly not the case that these local governments, regional governments, et cetera, don't want any federal involvement. Mm -hmm. It's just... <laughs> right. They like to complain about it. Politically, it's convenient. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. About yeah. When mm -hmm. you, you pay a political price for enforcement, yep. right? it's nice to have somebody else doing that, mm -hmm. even though ultimately you want the outcome. Yep. Right. Yep. And um, you know, just thinking about the Chesapeake Bay, because I, I find it to be, a, a, I mean, it's locally important. It's just a fascinating example. Mm -hmm. right? A lot of states. One of the tricky things. It strikes me about the Chesapeake Bay situation, why it would be difficult for the states to kind of do this on their own is it's kind of the Pennsylvania problem, right? <laughs> so Pennsylvania, and, it, and this exists, you know, you know, for obvious, you know, physical reasons, that they are upstream, yeah. right? And upstream states have very different interests from downstream states. They mm -hmm. don't really particularly enjoy the benefits. I mean, they might in some very abstract way. They're not on it, right? Um, they're not getting the tourism dollars. They're not getting that tax revenue. And it is largely up to them. Now, a classic, if Lee Epstein was, was, was here, no, no, sorry, if Richard Epstein was here, right, he would say, well, <laughs> what, you know, this shouldn't be a problem, just, right? All, just what, pay. Just pay. Just the downstream, yeah. the downriver states mm -hmm. should just pay Pennsylvania, 
right? right and yeah. then you can have a contract, yeah. and then you're sending them dough, and if they don't mm -hmm. do their limits, then you either stop sending them the dough or you enforce damages against them, right? In the, and then Congress would have to bless it or whatever, but, you know, whatever. The idea should be that there's only six parties. That's not that many. They should be able to come <laughs> yeah. up. They, they both lack the bilateral negotiating problem, and they're not so large that they run into, like, you know, too many parties. So in theory, this all sounds like it should work. So then, so what is the, I'm going to take Richard's position here. What is the problem? Why can't the states just get their act together and make an agreement that solves this issue? And why, you know, why do they need EPA with the hammer behind them? You know, why can't they have private arbitration or some other private, you know, quasi-private mechanism uh, to enforce an okay. ex-ante agreement? Just a small, I feel, I, 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 George I, think, I, think, I think that Richard would answer his own question if he posed it like uh, that okay, what would he by say? saying that the reason they don't is because there exists the potential for regulation and doing it for free. Okay. So right. why would, so, so the, why right, pay the, Pennsylvania? The, the very existence of the opportunity to get EPA to enforce against Pennsylvania is what's up. Okay, so it's that's a possible, that's possible. a plausible. Okay, that's plausible. Any other any other um, uh, well, we can even take from the audience here. Any other reasons why? What do we need EPA here for? Why why can't the states just? And so we'd be better off disbanding the EPA, right? <laughs> right? Because oh you know because it's the mere fact that they might someday do this for free that impedes the private um, negotiation. So I'll take there, Caroline's position. No, oh, oh, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I did it in the name of Richard. <laughs> so, but what does that tell us, right? Just again, I'm going to take the devil's advocate position here. Because um, we all agree, what the hell's the fun of that, right? So, so if um, so, so what is that? Maybe that tells us, right? So that if Virginia is not willing to pay Pennsylvania to cut its pollution, well, I don't know. When I'm not willing to pay for things, it usually means that it's not going to be worth it for me, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm getting isn't yeah. worth the coin, right? And so maybe if Virginia is not willing to incur the cost, it's telling us something about how much Virginia values the the bank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they tried a lot. I mean, yeah. The, the point John was making earlier is that we went through this voluntary regulatory strategy program for decades and, and it failed. And uh, there's not a lot of fair change laying around in state uh, government in uh, Maryland and Virginia. I mean, Virginia can't even come up with enough money to pay a fence cow down the street. So, and, and, and it's oversubscribed. All the So, so I guess I've got to give the, re the yeah. response to this, right? So, 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 so Virginia can't even come up with the money to pay its own farmers to stream it, to, to fence cows out of streams. So what does this tell us about the priorities of the state of Virginia? Now, I might disagree with those priorities. I might think this is a stupid thing. Of course, we should all be willing to pay more taxes to fence uh, cows out. But clearly, the representatives of the state of Virginia disagree with me about that, right? So now, so then the claim is perhaps that... Uh, this is a public choice failure, right? That actually the people of Virginia are willing to incur this cost, right? To pay for this, you know, public benefit. But for whatever reason, for ideology, partisanship, or whatever else, the state is failing to act to re represent the people's genuine preferences. So that's one possibility. If that's our argument, 
in favor of the federal government. I think we have to argue that the federal government is less prone to those kinds of public choice values, which I used to think, but I'm not so sure about anymore. That's right. Recent events have you know, updated my Bayesian priors about the public choice you know, uh, 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 values of the federal government. So, so is, is that the argument? Is that the federal government is actually less prone to being captured and so on than, than the states? And if so, why do we think that? Um, but another argument might be, and again, I'm just going to channel Richard Epstein. Poor, you know, I think he would actually appreciate that we're name, using his name so much. Um, would say, well, no, actually, your story's wrong. It's not that um, the state, the, the government of the state of Virginia, is somehow misrepresenting the interests of the people. It's just that you, Mike Livermore, happen to be willing to pay for more for environmental protection than the average citizen in the state of Virginia. Um, so I'll just throw that back out there as as the kind of the counter argument. Yeah, Kel. I would just uh, say there is no average citizen in Virginia. And uh, <laughs> what we have is you have sort of the, the Pennsylvania problem to the mm-hmm. downstream states, you have that replicated within the yep. Commonwealth, yep. where the mm-hmm. uh, chicken farms in Harrisonburg and the Shenandoah Valley mm-hmm. don't really see the bay as their thing. Mm-hmm. And so they don't really want to pay to control their chicken poop that's causing the problems for the bay. Right. right. And so then who should pay for that then? We're the watermen on the bay, but they don't have any money because those are the poorest uh, counties, as we heard from Jay Ford and Accomack. Those are the, some of the poorest people in the state, so they can't afford mm-hmm. to pay the Shenandoah Valley uh, to clean up their chicken. Okay, so I'll just do one more question on this, this line we can go off of, which is so say we have some money and it's to help the water the people that live on the bank, who are the poorest people in the state by hypothesis, right? Let's just say. Now, we ask them, do you want to use it to clean up chicken poop upstream or do you want to use it to, you know, fund local infrastructure and schools and so on? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we actually, uh, CBS has a program where we do exchange with the farmers in Shenandoah Valley and the Chandler Waterman in the Bay. And uh, I think the thing Mm-hmm. who are essentially farmers of the farm. Mm-hmm. And when they have gone on those trips, it's, you know, the art. You know, mm-hmm. people that just completely now get it and they understand and they want to do more. I think the other piece of this puzzle that we're not touching on is that those people, whether it's the watermen or the farmers, have no control over the pricing of our food system. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. they are right. largely driven, poultry farmers, by pricing to produce. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. big conglomerates that do control the price, mm-hmm. and they are stuck, you know, basically getting the pennies on the pound of chicken, and until we actually, mm-hmm. I think, pay yeah. for our food system really costs, right. yeah. then, right. then we're not going to mm-hmm. be able to come yeah. up with that money to, to mm-hmm. do what this is. Yeah. 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 yeah, and it's a big interlocking. It's a big, big externality problem. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. So, exactly. So, pushing back on sort of, you know, um, Mike sort of made assumptions to make it very more tractable or just to make the point. But, you know, the reality is, I assume part of it is that Virginia, it, 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 Virginia's position is not we're getting all the benefits, we don't want to pay for it, and Pennsylvania, we want you to take on some of these costs for our benefits. I mean, I'm sure Virginia thinks Pennsylvania benefits also, but it's just, mm-hmm. it's just harder to make, you know, it's not as a clear visual, we're on it. Um, way it's it could be in the form of enjoying oysters and enjoying crabs and wanting to Mm -hmm. have 
this in the future, or it could be when they go fishing um, and they're not thinking about this. So I, I don't know. So it's not completely isolated like that, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. And, and, over here, babe, huh? Yeah, sure. There's been some tendency here to uh, treat farmers as if they were always part of the problem and never part of the solution. Farm Bureau mentioned, for example, as if they represent all farmers, but they don't. They're only a collection of right-wing farmers who are really in bed with the corporations. And there is a growing movement of, of sustainable and regenerative farmers who are really at the other end of the spectrum. Now, I want to ask a question from that comment, which is that yesterday, uh, Germany, uh, there was a study out of Germany that showed that 75% of the winged insects in, in, in Europe have been found to have been lost over the last few years. And that's because, uh, this is not part of the findings, but my knowledge would lead me to conclude that that's because of the heavy use of pesticides. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this is necessary by farmers, yeah. uh, at least some farmers believe that they must use it in order to be able to compete, in order to be able to survive in farming. You can't solve that problem locally because it's a federal policy squeeze that they're under that forces them to use the methods that they're using. So even though now we have in Arkansas, for example, they're trying to address the dicamba pollution issue down there at a state level by banning its use, um, it's, a, it's still 49 other states where this is a, an issue, and um, one state taking action is a drop in the bucket. Similarly, in the glyphosate and Monsanto products, we have in this country maybe a half a dozen to a dozen counties that have banned of that farming method, um, you're, you're, again, a drop in the bucket um, compared to the size of the national problem. India is actually a better example. Now they've got states that are banning Monsanto, and uh, there's one province in, in China that has banned Monsanto products, um, but we have no state in the United States that's taken that kind of action because of the power I mean, I think it would, yeah, it would also, I mean, there's other kind of rules and structures in the, in the U.S. federal system as well that, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with, say, uh, an interstate market, right, one of the kind of background rules of the kind of the U.S. economic system is a fairly free flow of trade between states, right? So we have national markets in things like agriculture, right, because of these background norms. And so that can make it very, that can make it tricky. So that's kind of the, to kick it to these guys. So there's agriculture kind of on the table, and then there's the interplay of local decision making with these big national markets that often heavily condition the, 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 the option set of these localities. Uh, so on the winged insect agriculture issue, this is, I agree with you that when you have uh, uh, something that certainly crosses boundaries like insects mm -hmm. and pollinating crops and providing other benefits, that, that does call for a federal solution. It's a, cla it's a classic example of, of a federal need. And the USDA, it, through, through its programs working directly with farmers and, and giving them money for conservation uh, 
efforts that they are taking, and I agree with you that many farmers, many farmers are trying to, to help. <laughs> I'm not meaning to paint all farmers as, uh, as problems, but the USDA has a conservation benefits program where it doles out money and it actually measures the impacts of its funding. It's determining whether the federal funds are, are helping. And part of that program is for bees, uh, encouraging the planting of milkweed and within crops, you know, even little strips of milkweed within crops. And, no, that's for, uh, well, for monarchs, monarchs, but, but, but also, mon yeah, the monarchs also as pollinators. But the bees are more pesticides, and you similar issue. But um, yeah, so it, it's not, and it's not just milkweed; it's other pollinated other crops that, that bees would like. <laughs> so, so flowers, for example, there are uh, that's part of the USDA program. So I'm gonna, I'm not gonna talk about insects. I'm gonna split into two <laughs> two parts though, um, which. I think are, are very interesting. So one is, one is this idea that um, there are these, there are farmers. They're, they're not a homogenous group. That there are farmers that are trying to do the right thing. They're just under the squeeze. So, I mean, so I think we need to look more into solutions to support best management practices, figure them out, and inform farmers about them. But also make it visible to the public, so that when the public makes decisions, which increasingly there is segments of the public that are willing to spend more um, on products that have certain attributes, um, that this could be salient for them um, from that level. And maybe these farmers wouldn't get squeezed out. And then the separate question of the pesticides, I think um, we're at the tip of the iceberg for what the cost, the true cost of pesticides are. And I think that as we get more information about what the true costs, um, I agree that it's, a, it's probably a federal solution just because of the amount of money and research, et cetera, this involves. But maybe we'll start moving forward. I mean, um, Mike and I read research uh, a year ago now, right, about how um, the declines in bat populations, farmers have reacted to those by increasing pesticide use. And then um, there was a PhD student who had linked this to birth defects, actually. So the hidden cost of pesticides, just in this natural experiment where previously bats were doing some of this work by killing the winged insects. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that now the farmers had to react because there was less bats, so they had to react by um, increasing the pesticide use. And then the, the researcher was able to link this. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, separately just a fascinating uh, case of where we might just not be accounting for the social costs of those things, and maybe that's what we need to start with and then see how that changes the market dynamics. So, yeah, and so just to pick up on kind of one other element that you, that you posed that I think is interesting and really respect something that Hannah was talking about earlier. So the, the Farm Bureau as the kind of representative of the farm community, right? So this plays out in... Well, they claim they certainly they, they claim they are. So hold on one second. Right. So so but but I, I agree with you. So let me let me just get there. So um, so the and this isn't just farms either where this kind of plays out. There are other trade associations that represent themselves as you know representing business, right? The business, um, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, right? Uh, the National Manufacturers Association mm -hmm. and the like. This is like how a lot of decision making in DC gets done is you talk to the affected parties and it means the Farm Bureau, for them they think it means the Farm Bureau and the Chamber and so on. But these uh, industry representatives don't necessarily actually reflect the interests of their members, or at least substantial portions of their membership, right? So the Farm mm -hmm. Bureau is a great example of that. Uh, certainly the Chamber of Commerce is another. 
Now, the question that I, this makes me, you know, what this raises in the context of this conversation about federalism is whether the allocation of power at the federal level and that so much decision-making happens at the federal level exacerbates this kind of pathology within the NGO, civic society kind of, you know, trade group situation. Whereas if you have like local decision-making, it's much harder for the Farm Bureau to come in and say, in Iowa, oh, we represent all farmers when all the farmers are like, uh, no, you don't represent us, right? Whereas in the Beltway, yeah. Nobody's a farmer, right? You know, so the Farm Bureau comes in and says, we represent all the farmers, and the, you know, the folks at the agency say, oh, okay, well, I don't know, sounds about right to me. You have farm in your name. And so, so this is a real problem. Um, and I wonder if um, you know, that plays out as much at the state level. I'd be curious about that, or even more so on the local level, where you actually have farmers that can come in and say, look, I live in the community, I work in, you know, in this industry, and this... Uh, entity that doesn't really represent my interests. Again, I'm not sure about that. I'm just it's, I'm curious about that. Yeah, just the insurance thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. 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 That's right. Then that's done with other other entities as well. Okay. We're start. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's see. So I think we can do one more question, and then we'll we'll wrap up for the day. Yeah. So Charlie. Go. opinion is it's de- it depends on the problem. If you can show that the costs and benefits are mostly on the local level, then I think you have a pretty solid argument for why that's the relevant party. Now, of course, it depends on the state law to s- whether the <laughs> local government that, has yeah. any influence. But right. I, mean, I mean, from a policy perspective, right, you can argue around the allocation right. of cost benefits. But from a, from a constitutional perspective or from a legal perspective, the reality is this mm-hmm. local governments are kind of fictions. Yeah. yeah, although I think there's a growing movement, at least in the literature. I don't know if this will take hold on the ground, right. but there's an argument that, I mean, you, we can move be, even beyond home rule, and that the fact that states are now relying so much on local governments to do their work, including to take on the financial responsibilities of doing state work, states' work, that we should recognize them for what we're really treating them as, right. which is full fully independent governments that are not merely arms of the state which i, I sounds great to me we'll see if that ends up yeah, getting right. purchased right and and maybe over the like maybe not so much over the short term but maybe over the longer term right because mm-hmm. states are odd entities at some level you know given where costs and benefits are are actually fall you know and you know in terms of their administrative capacity so maybe they do start to go away but the kind of current situation is i think difficult right so you can get some law review articles and cite them to a court right but i think the yeah. current law is tough yeah. um but you know the laws change but but states are 
they can give power sure. to local governments. Yeah. I mean, it's not hopeless. I mean, and, and they, they have, yeah, and they right. are in certain contexts yeah. and everything. And then they so they're, take they're it back really when they don't like how it's used. One other, <laughs> one other wacky argument is that local governments are corporate, many of them are corporations. And with the recent Supreme Court decisions rec recognizing enhanced corporate rights, maybe mm -hmm. the local governments can. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I'm like trying to get creative. Kind of a private rights, you know, <laughs> yeah. just incorporate and run it as a company. You actually probably have more. Uh, you know, more status than local governments do. Yeah. Okay, well, with that, um, um, thanks very much to all the panelists of the day and to the audience for your. Thank you.